and we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 12. This is uh, week three of three in a little mini-series in what it means to be church. What is a church? What does it mean to be uh, part of it? We thought together, didn't we, that a church comprises a chosen people in 1 Peter 2, as God builds this glorious temple building project in his people. Uh, we thought in Ephesians 2 last week that we were a united people, a family, a Jew, Gentile, brought together people from every kind of background, brought together by the gospel and made one new person in Christ. And today we're going to dig a little bit more into the specifics of what it means to live as that people together as we think about being a serving people in response to God's grace in Christ. So we're going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through to verse 16. We're going to finish at verse 16 together. Verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, of, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's pray together for God's help. Heavenly Father, our desire is that we would be a church gripped and transformed by your grace in the Lord Jesus. So we pray that these next few minutes would achieve that end. Grip us by your grace and transform us increasingly into the church that you're calling us to be. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it's working well, the human body is amazing, isn't it? You might um, you think of your own examples, but you might think of someone like uh, Roger Federer uh, gliding across the court, a flashing cross-court forehand, everything in perfect motion. 
or Simone Biles, uh, Olympic gymnast, twirling and flipping and flying through the air, or you're watching the prima ballerina on the stage and she's spinning in perfect grace across the floor, everything in perfect coordination. The human body is a wonderful thing when it's working well. It's true of human bodies. It's true of the church body, a body like this one as well. A church which has been gripped and transformed, a church being transformed by the grace of God in the gospel is a thing of absolute wonder and beauty. And that's, that's where we are this morning. We're going to have, we pray, God's word thrill us with the wonder of being a church increasingly transformed by his grace. And we're going to see three marks of that kind of church. First, a church gripped by grace is a sacrificial church. Uh, here we're in particularly verses 1 to 2. A sacrificial church. Uh, jumping into Romans at uh, chapter 12, it, it's a little bit like turning up at a, a concert or a gig a couple of hours late. Uh, what's coming will be great, but we've missed a whole lot. And, and the music that Paul has been playing for 11 chapters already has been the beautiful symphony, the stunning album of God's soaring grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we work through it, we'd have heard the exquisite melodies of justification by grace alone. That God could take rebel sinners like us in all of our wickedness and in his courtroom declare us not guilty in his sight. Perfect. We'd have heard the grace of reconciliation as we're moved from the law court to the battlefield and God, as it were, in armor, comes to us and lays down his arms and offers rebels a royal pardon and peace with him as justified people. The melody of liberation, Romans chapter 6. A God whose grace isn't content only to deal with the penalty of sin, but grace which breaks the power of sin, snapping the chains which held us and propelled us toward death. The grace of transformation, Romans chapter 8. A grace which pours the Holy Spirit into the heart and empowers a new kind of obedience in the likeness of Christ. The grace, chapters 9 to 11, of God's sovereign choice. A grace which discover, we discover which began not only before our life began, but before creation began. A grace which takes hold of us which reaches down to rebels, rescues us from the rule of sin and death, and plants us securely in the realm of his grace. As Romans 5 puts it, we now in Christ stand in grace every day of our life. But Romans 8 reminds us, as we think about it though, that this is a grace with a purpose, and that purpose is grand, and it reappears here in chapter 12. You see that word in verse 2? Be transformed. It's a dramatic word. It comes from the word metamorphosis, a change of form. I don't know whether you can remember where you were when you learned that butterflies come from caterpillars. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You look at those two creatures and they've got apparently nothing in common. How can something so kind of ordinary and earthbound be transformed? metamorph, change form into this stunning, flying thing of beauty. That's the transforming power of the gospel in the life of the Christian. 
chapters, chapter 1 to 11 aren't just about making us feel better, though if we believe them, they often will. They're about making us better. They change us from proud and selfish people, the kind of people described back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, to people who look and live and walk like the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you see that verse 2 tells us how the transformation happens? Verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is such an important lesson to learn early in the Christian life, isn't it? That where your mind goes, where your thinking and your believing goes, so your life will follow. I don't know whether you've had much experience of riding horses, if you can manage to get on the thing. That was always my challenge, that once or twice I tried. Once you're on it, it looks quite easy, doesn't it? To turn the horse, all you do is you, you have the, the, the bit and the bridle and the reins and you pull and you turn the, gently turn the head of the horse and wherever the head of the horse goes, the body follows. Now, forgive me for comparing the Christian to a horse, but it's the same in the Christian life, is it not? Wherever my mind goes, my thinking and my believing goes, so my life, my body, every part of me will follow. And that's why we do what we do here, isn't it? We may well be the sort of church which sometimes gets criticized for being too cerebral, too, uh, too about the mental, too obsessed with Bible truth and Bible preaching and Bible study. Why is it that we're so committed to it together? Why aren't, for example, our fellowship groups just socials every time? At this past Thursday, we've I trust had a good time in our groups digging into Romans 12, trying to work out how one word relates to each other, why that sentence follows that one, what that paragraph means. Why do we do that hard mental work together in our fellowship groups? Because we want to be transformed by the truth. We could call them transformation groups. Maybe we should. We want to be transformed. This is why we promise, we read it in our membership covenant, that we will defend and maintain a Bible-based and Christ-centered ministry. It's not just that we're sort of obsessed with being right for right's sake, but we know that God's grace, the truth of the gospel, is the power that renews our minds so that we change. And this is why Paul has been playing this gospel album for 11 chapters so far in this letter. It's how we change. As we put the gospel on loop, like we put our favorite album on loop, as we sing it, as we pray it, as we study it, as we believe it together, God transforms us by it. Which, by the way, means that my first and primary contribution to the health of this church, long before we're talking about service and rotors, if I'm a member of this church, my primary responsibility is to keep having my mind renewed by the gospel of grace. I won't be able to help you as a member or serve you unless I do that. That's true of all of us. You might have heard that aeroplane instruction, you know the one, that parents should put the oxygen mask on before fitting their child. And the first time you hear that, you think, oh, that's wrong. That sounds incredibly selfish. But you think about it, and of course it makes sense. I can't help my child unless I'm breathing oxygen myself. There's something like that going on here in our church family. I can't serve and love you unless I'm breathing in the oxygen of God's grace in the gospel for myself. That's true of all of us. So let's ask ourselves, are we doing that? Are you? 
Are you rejoicing in the grace of God in the gospel today? Do you still love the gospel? Or has it grown dull? Do you love the word of God and the truth it gives you, it teaches you? Or do you need to blow the dust off yours a little bit? It's God's grace in the gospel which transforms us. And notice into what? Verse 1. Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. It makes us a church of living sacrifices. It's an Old Testament picture, isn't it? The, the worshiper taking something that belonged to them, a, an animal of some kind, and laying it on the altar as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. But do you notice here in chapter 12, it's not calling us only to offer something we own, is it? It's not only calling us to, I don't know, give God our Sundays or 10% of our income. In truth, you don't even need to be a Christian to go to church on a Sunday or to give away 10% of your money. This is about our whole life. The gospel teaches us to offer ourselves, our bodies. And that looks very practical. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet. The Christian, the church, gripped by God's grace, smells of sacrifice. Their heart their mind, their eyes, their ears, their mouth, their nose, what their hands make, where their feet go, what they decide to look at with their eyes, what they decide to say with their mouth, all now is to be a sacrifice offered to God. To say, Lord, for all of your grace to me in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to stop living for myself. I want to be a living sacrifice in your service each day. I want to please you. I want to obey you. I want to glorify you with my life, to make your will my rule. And what happens when you put a whole bunch of living sacrifices together, people being renewed by the grace of God in the gospel? You see something beautiful. You see, for example, verses 3 to 8, a serving church, a serving church. We've heard lots about service this week, haven't we? We've been reminded of the vow that the Queen made in her 21st birthday radio address. She told the nation, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. That's a very good summary of the life of the church. Devoted to the service of God and the service of one another. And did you notice again that this service begins in the mind? We need to think it through, verse 3. God's grace teaches us to think of ourselves with sober judgment. The faith that God has given us in the gospel teaches us to think of ourselves with sober judgment, to measure ourselves against what we now believe in the gospel. And whether you used to do this as a child, whether you used to have a particular place on the wall in your house where you'd stand with your back to it and mum or dad would make a mark above your head and then you'd get the measuring tape out and you'd find out how much you'd grown over the last few months. Most of us have given up on doing that now. We're worried we're going the other way. But the gospel is like that measuring tape. We, we stand against it now. We're taught to think about ourselves rightly by measuring ourselves against the gospel and what it teaches us. And what does it teach us when we do that? Well, it rules out a couple of things, doesn't it? Obviously, it rules out pride in the life of the church. It prepares me to serve in the church by reminding me that I am a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. 
But it rules out something else too, doesn't it? It rules out individualism. It teaches me, notice verse 4, that I belong to a body. In fact, see how strongly Paul puts it in verse 5. Verse 5, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are individuals. We don't have our particular personality erased when we become Christians, but we now belong to each other. We've been fused together by the gospel so that we serve one another. We don't operate independently anymore. That's just not how healthy bodies work. And imagine if your body did that. Imagine that one of my hands decides to be completely independent of my other hand. And imagine the difficulty you'd have trying to brush your teeth. So you've got one hand holding the brush, jamming it into your mouth, trying to brush, and the other hand desperately trying to pull it out and throw it out the bathroom window. You'd get nothing done. Or what if your right leg decided to work completely independently of your left? Well, Monty Python showed us what that looks like, didn't they, in the Ministry of Silly Walks? You remember that one? John Cleese trying to come up with as silly a walk as he possibly could. I'm tempted to demonstrate, but I, I'm too self-conscious, so I won't. But it's laughable, right? A body where the members are working against each other is laughable. It's true of the church too. But when the church and its members work together, when they serve each other, it's beautiful. This is how God designed the church. And where Paul lands it, you'll have noticed in verses 3 to 8, is with our gifts. The abilities that God has given us, some more flashy, some less so, but all vital and needed. Gifts God has given us, abilities God has given us, they're not for me as the individual, they're for us. My gifts are for you, yours for me. And it must work this way, mustn't it? I mean, imagine, um, you know, we're, we're having conversations at the moment, or at least politicians are having conversations about, for example, uh, finding more doctors and so on. And imagine somebody came up with some brilliant scheme, and we found tons and tons and tons of new doctors, and we sent them all off to med school, and they went through their training, however, however long, sort of 70 years of training, or however long it takes, um, and they come out the other side, and someone's crunching the numbers, and they discover that it's made no appreciable difference whatsoever to the situation on the ground. And so, you know, a little task force is put together, Go and find out what's gone wrong. So a survey, a representative survey sample is taken of some of these now trained doctors. And so the questions are asked, well, uh, what's the problem here? A lack of training? And they say, oh, no, we've had the best training you could possibly have, world-class standard training. There's nothing about the human body that I don't know now. I can diagnose anything. Uh, is it uh, a lack of equipment? And in this scenario, imagine they say, oh, no, we've got brilliant. In fact, they pull out their stethoscope and they show you, and they say, isn't it fantastic? I know doctors have got more than stethoscopes, right? But that's the one I could think of. They, they show you their stethoscope, and they, they say, well, isn't it wonderful? It works brilliantly. And you say, well, well, it works brilliantly, so there's nothing wrong with it. You say, oh, it's brilliant. I use it on myself every morning. I've never been in better health. I know how to diagnose myself. I know how to treat myself. I always know what to prescribe myself. And you say to them, right. What about the patients? Patients? What are patients? Look, a, a doctor who doesn't see patients isn't really a doctor at all, are they? A Christian who doesn't use their gifts for others? They need to come back to the gospel and learn to serve. Our gifts aren't for us. Well, they're not for me anyway. They're for you, for us. If God has given you a musical gift, 
He's given it to you for the sake of the church. If you're gifted at administration, that is a valuable gift for the church. If you're able to teach the Bible, it's for the sake of the church. If you've been blessed with resources of some kind or another, it's God calling you to use them for the church as well. My gifts are for you and yours for me. And they're not there either. Are they for my own fulfillment or to be used when it's convenient for me or when it suits me? I mean, imagine that. Imagine if our music group insisted that they were only going to play songs that they liked. Or, or we had a welcome team that, that decided they were only going to welcome people we like the look of from now on. Or, or we had preachers who only preach passages that they like or whatever it is. That, that's using my gift to serve myself, isn't it? A church transformed by grace loves to serve each other, not selfishly, but sacrificially. Living sacrifices together. Look, the encouragement here is that this really is for all of us this morning. You may not feel particularly gifted, but God has a part for you to play in the life of the church. You've probably heard the one about comparing uh, church life to a rugby match. You know that one? You've got 30 exhausted people doing all the work and the rest watching from the stands. I don't think that does describe our church life, actually. But when it comes to the church, we're all on the pitch. We've all been picked. We're a chosen people. We all get to play together. And it's true that COVID in some ways made this a bit complicated. I mean, those first few Sunday services broadcast were so strange. Were they strange for you? Bizarre. Whether you were at home watching or it was quite weird, I have to say, being here as well, turning up on that first Sunday and there being an absolute skeleton fewest possible people crew, uh, working incredibly hard, I have to say, particularly tech team and musicians, working incredibly hard to put it on. But it was very odd. It was a sort of disembodied existence, having to pare everything down like that. We are a body together. We did it when we had to. And then we had the building project. Well, look, we're now at a time where we get to refresh, aren't we? We get to remember who we are as a body together. And if over the last little while we've found ourselves taking a bit of a backward step, let's make this the time that we make a forward step into serving each other in every way we possibly can. And maybe it means, maybe the step for you is becoming a member for yourself. I would love to talk to you about that uh, afterwards if you come and find me. And maybe it means joining one of the many ministries here in need of help. We are always running ministries on the edge because we want to do as much as we can. So don't get the impression that everything's over-resourced. It isn't. <laughs> Come join us. Whatever you do, don't stay, don't stay in the stands. God wants you on the pitch. A serving church is beautiful to see. And then just one more mark this morning, and then we're done. And it's a loving church. A church transformed by God's grace is a loving church. And here we're in verses 9 through to 16. Uh, did you notice that in verse 9, Paul moves from gifts to commands? So these commands really are for all of us, regardless of our gifting. And you'll know that the New Testament contains several lists of commands like this one, which we might find surprising if we've thought of commands as basically an Old Testament thing. You know, God used to give commands, and then he sort of gave up because we're hopeless at keeping them, and then he sent Jesus instead, and now it's all grace. Well, it is all grace. That's one of the things we're saying here, isn't it? But what kind of grace is it? 
It's an empowering grace. God's grace in Christ doesn't only wonderfully pay the penalty for sin. It breaks its power as well. In the new covenant, God has poured out his powerful Holy Spirit into the hearts of every single one of his people in order that these commands might not be an impossible burden, but a thoroughly possible joy. And of course it's true that we won't obey God perfectly until we see the Lord Jesus face to face, but that doesn't mean that we can't obey God truly from the heart. Of course we can if the Spirit of God truly lives within us. When we throw our hands in the air and say how useless we are and how impossible obedience is, it's not just us we're insulting, it's the Holy Spirit. Christian, do you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? He's at work to bring about obedience to these commands in you. Don't think that your sin is stronger than the Spirit's power. Don't think that you're the one person that God's Spirit cannot change from within. His grace is at work in you, and it's teaching you here, notice, to love. We haven't got time to go through all the commands, so we're just going to focus there. Look at love there as the headline in verses 9 to 10. A church gripped by grace loves each other. Remember, this, this was a, a letter written to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, ancient enemies. And Paul's headline here to them, verse 9, don't just tolerate each other. Don't just resign yourself to having to spend time together once a week. Love each other. Love each other fervently. Verse 10 could be translated, be devoted to each other. Did you see it's a family love? Verse 10, love each other, be devoted with each other with brotherly affection. We, we promised this in our covenant, membership covenant, to be devoted to one another in family love. Now notice it's an honoring love. Did you see that in verse 10? I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. In a kind of Roman culture, uh, the goal was to pursue honor, to compete for honor. Paul says here, well, okay, if you're going to compete, compete to honor each other. Compete to respect and value and cherish one another. What a beautiful picture that is. Notice it's a caring love. Verse 15. These are words that we've taken and put straight into our membership covenant. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Not always easy. We can sometimes feel awkward around grieving people. And rejoicing people can make us feel envious of their happiness, can't they, sometimes? But love weeps and rejoices with them all the same. And see how beautifully practical all of this is. We should expect that. Remember, it's our bodies that are to be living sacrifices. But have a look at that there in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You, you can't do that theoretically, can you? You can't theoretically contribute to the needs of the saints. You can't show theoretical hospitality. I have to practically open my home or practically go for coffee with someone and spend time with them, practically befriend them, practically meet their needs. As the gospel renews our minds, we look for chances to practically love those around me. And there are beautiful examples of this going on all the time in our church life. One of the best things that happens in church life is stumbling across some act of love that's been going on without your knowledge. Discovering about phone calls to those who are stuck at home and can't get out. Accidentally finding out about messages and meals and cards that have been sent 
to the sick and the struggling. At noticing that such and such has given such and such a lift to church and keeps on doing it out of their way week after week after week. I visited someone not so long ago uh, in a, a, a care home who, who, who's, the staff at the care home had been amazed at the trail of visitors. They said to our church member, where are these people from? My church. That is the practical love of a church gripped by grace. And it's a grace which pushes us to stretch that love, to ask who is there in need around me? How might the Lord be calling me to love them in a practical way today? Isn't the church of Romans 12 a beautiful thing? Isn't this the church that we want to be? How can we be a church like this? Well, where did we begin? One and two. As the gospel of God's grace renews our minds. I remember reading an illustration of this that I found so helpful. This is completely borrowed, but I found it so helpful. So I'm going to leave this with you and then we're done. And it's an imagined story about two dancers. Imagine one, one of these people is watching another dancing in a dance studio. And the dancer's got uh, headphones in their ears, and they're listening to the most beautiful and exquisite music. And they're dancing in response in the most beautiful and exquisite way. The onlooker is wowed by it. Stunning, graceful, beautiful, everything in perfect coordination together, nothing out of place. And amazed too by how long they do it, they just keep on dancing without apparently feeling tired. On and on and on, they go round and round and round the floor. And the second person looks at them and thinks, I'd love to be able to dance like that. Or to be able to move like that person. And so they begin to try and copy the moves. And they try and move their arms in a similar way to the dancer that they've seen. And they try to move their feet in a similar way to the dancer that they've seen. But the moves feel clunky and random. And the, dancers, the second dancer soon starts to feel self-conscious and tired. And eventually, they give up. What's the problem for the second dancer? They can't hear the music. When it comes to our church life together, what causes the body to move in the perfect harmony of service and love is the beautiful music of God's amazing grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we want to be a serving and a loving church increasingly in the future, let's turn the music of God's grace right up. May God's grace so grip us, so delight us, so transform us that we serve and love together with joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing mercies, your many mercies to us in the Lord Jesus. We praise you for the power 
at work in us to transform us as our minds are renewed by the gospel, motivating and empowering us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices together. Father, please may this be true of us. May the beauty of your transforming grace be obvious in practical ways in our church life. Lord, may we be increasingly a serving church and a loving church in response to all of your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by singing a hymn which calls us together to be the church that God has called us to be. Let's stand and sing.